So that was a wonderful time serving it at, uh, at uh, the church in Sovereign Grace Church. In, uh, we met at Tuscarora High School, and uh, I had had a burden for a number of years to plant a church in the town that I live. And so the church in August of 2014, the board voted to release me, and we went ahead and, and planted a church. And just this past January, a couple weeks ago, we had our five-year celebration. And uh, counting the goodness of God, in 30 people jumped off the bus, and we said, here's the raw material we're going to build with who's here. And uh, the Lord is adding to our numbers, and we're rejoicing in the work that he is doing as he's attracting particularly couples with younger children. We have about 100 adults, but we have 40 kids. <laughs> so we have quite a robust children's ministry. So good to be here this morning. Uh, our our um, other pastor, we're, we're both bivocational. Our other pastor, Brad, uh, he's been here. He sends you his love and uh, warm welcome this morning and know that he has been praying for this morning as well. So if you would open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 9 this morning. So when you think about some great things and you think about some great themes, you know, a number of things can come to mind when you think about the greatness of the Lord and how good he is. This morning I want to talk about, and I want us to consider this morning, a great theme, a great topic, and that is the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God. And we're going to do this by looking at Psalm 51. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 through verse 9. The word of the Lord. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Would you pray with me? So, Father, our prayer is just very simply as we come to your word this morning, you addressing us through your inspired word. So would you help us not to just understand what you have for us this morning through your word, but, Lord, pour out your spirit, give each of us gift of illumination to understand your word so that, Lord, we may experience its transforming effect in our lives as we seek to apply your word. And so this I pray, only that which you can do in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This book of Psalms is one of the most unique books in all of the Bible. And here's why. Because when you read this, you find passionate and deep-hearted expressions by the writers. You get to hear their real-life situations and the experiences that they are going through. And it's why it's so easy for us to relate to what's going on in the Psalms, why it's easy for us to, it resonates with us because these thoughts, these expressions and these motions and these longings, these wrestlings that are going on, they're actually going on in the hearts and the minds of the one who wrote it. And so when you read and you listen to what they're saying, you hear this crying out, want to be understood, want someone to care for them. And that's what David is doing as he's writing this, that he wants God to hear him. He wants God to understand him. He wants God to care for him. And in the process of doing this, these expressions, we end up finding in the Psalms a lot about who God is and what he's like. Truth about God emerges in these wrestlings. And so not only are the expressions of someone's wrestlings, but they're the inspired truth written by the Spirit of God, directed by the Spirit of God. And just think about it in your own walk. Think, what Christian would not want to know, the Lord is my shepherd, longing, caring, pouring oil, guiding, leading, making me to lie down in green pastures. Or that the Lord, like in Psalm um, uh, 32, that he is near the brokenhearted, those crushed in spirits, actually 34. Who would not want to know that the Lord is near? Or when you think about, the Lord is my refuge. Where do I go when things are imploding on me, turning in me, on me? Do, I, I love what John shared this morning. Do I go to the ice cream? The Lord is my refuge, an ever-present help and strength. And the Lord is merciful. He is full of mercy towards us. And uh, the other week, I got out a ruler in the kitchen, and Cindy said, what, what are you measuring? And it was one of these odd-length rules. I said, well, I need to measure from here to here. It's about 15 inches. Because you can know truth, but until that truth travels at 15 inches from head to heart, it doesn't function. All we do is we know it. For me, it sometimes feels like the length of a marathon to get a knowledge of who God is and how he acts into my heart so that it's functioning in my life. It's influencing my thinking. It's influencing my feelings. It's influencing how I react to things that go on in my life. A.W. Tozier once said this. He said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. So that frames up my question for you this morning as we look at this. Do you really know this truth about God that he is full of mercy towards you? Do you have that as head knowledge or is it making its way to heart knowledge that he is full of mercy towards you? Is it shaping your thinking? Is it shaping your feeling? Is it exerting its influence on you every single day? And we did this series 
back at the beginning of January. This is a three-part series I did for the church because we wanted to start the new year and we wanted to start the new decade with this resonating in our heart that God is full of mercy towards us. And as we understand God's mercy in the gospel and what he's accomplished for us and what his blood has bought for us, it informs and it deepens not just our communion and our fellowship with God, it informs and it deepens our communion and our community with one another and our church. Because our commitment isn't driven about what we're told to do, our commitment is driven by what's been done for us in his mercy. And I'm eager. I'm eager for our church. I would be eager for your church that this is a clearly and clear operating vision for this church that a heart knowledge of God's mercy towards you is what God is like. And so saying it differently, I just be, would be eager to say, have a clearer vision of what we have in the gospel and his mercy. So we're going to look at two things today. I hope you have a handout. If you don't, maybe someone can pass them out. Our need for mercy, and God is full of mercy. Our need for mercy, and God is full of mercy. Well, look at Psalm 51, and look at the opening introduction to the psalm. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So there's a backdrop to this psalm that we have to build a little bit about. And it comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. David was a wonderful king. He was a righteous king. The Bible describes him as having a heart after God. And he was a warrior king because when the armies would come to attack Jerusalem, oftentimes he would be the one to lead his armies out into battle. But on this one day, he did not. And the story starts, it says, in this afternoon, David went for a walk up on his rooftop. And he could see down into the courtyards, into the porticos below his building. And he saw something. He saw a woman, saw a woman bathing. And the Bible tells us three things, that this woman's name was Bathsheba. This woman was beautiful, and this woman was bathing. Now, David could have avoided a whole lot of headache had he taken into his heart what God says about a man's eyes. In Proverbs 6, 5, 6.25, actually, he says, Do not let her beauty, do not take her beauty into your heart, or let her eyelashes capture you or anything else. And if David had turned and obeyed that impulse, he would have saved himself much trouble, but he did not. He called for Bathsheba by his men. Bathsheba came, and you know what happened. She laid, he laid with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba got pregnant. So now David's got a problem, because David's the king. He has a reputation he has fear of man operating in him, and he has to fix this problem. Uriah, who is Bathsheba's wife, is also one of David's 30 select top officers. These are guys 
that have allegiance almost to death and loyalty to the king. And so he called Uriah back from the fighting. And he said, Uriah, how's the war going? How is Joab? How are things going? And he wanted to have Uriah go home and lay with his wife so that the pregnancy would look like it was of Uriah. And Uriah would have nothing to do with it. He went home and he slept outside. David was told about that. And he said, ah, I will bring David to my quarters at this time. And this time I will get him drunk. And that's exactly what David did. He got him drunk and asked Uriah to go back home. And Uriah would not go back in to lay with his wife. And so plan A failed, plan B failed, and now David, not wanting to risk his reputation, said to himself, I have to fix this. So he sent Uriah back to the front with a sealed letter to Joab, the commander. And the, the, the plan was, in the intense worst part of the battle, put Uriah to the front and on your command, back away. And in backing away, Uriah would be slain. And that's exactly what happened. And so David not only committed adultery and not only murdered Uriah by the hand of the Ammonites, now this whole cover-up begins to cover. And in the last verse in chapter 11 says, and this thing displeased the Lord. God loved David enough then to send in Nathan to him. Nathan was a prophet. And he told him this story about a lamb and a rich man who had many lambs and another man who had only one ewe lamb was very dear and precious. A traveler came and the rich man took the ewe lamb from the one man who only had one and slaughtered it for the meal. And David was indignant, so that man deserves to die had he no pity. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. And in saying, you're the man, he went on to say, David, if it wasn't enough that I gave you your freedom, I, I, I delivered you from Saul, I gave you all of these things, and would I, I would have given you more, and the Lord, speaking through Nathan, said to David directly, why have you despised the word of the Lord and done this evil in his sight? So David displeased the Lord. David despised the Lord and did evil. And the weight of that guilt, I don't know how long it was, but the weight of that guilt on David began to crush him. He later described it as breaking of bones. And in chapter 12, you read where he says, I have sinned against the Lord and done evil in his sight. And then we see this first entrance of the gospel in the story of David's life, that the Lord covered his sin. He said, but you have utterly scorned the Lord. So here's David. What he did displeased the Lord. What he did was despise his word, and then he utterly scorned the Lord. And so this psalm was written on the backdrop of that story of David having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, murdering Uriah, and then presenting to all of the people, everything is okay. 
and completely violating their trust. So in verse 1, David comes to God now under this conviction and he says, Have mercy on me, O God. He knew he was in desperate need of the mercy of God and he was very aware of what he was done. He was carrying this guilt. In verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He is owning it now, and he owns it in the full vocabulary of the language. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David could no longer outrun the Spirit of God nor the law of God said, thou shalt not commit adultery, and he had done that. Thou shalt not murder, and unimaginably he had done that. Thou shalt not bear false witness, and he was in the midst of that. David was putting up every front possible that this was okay. But the full weight of God's word crushed his conscience. In Psalm 32, he talks about, and the Lord's hand was heavy Upon him. You do not want the heavy hand of the Lord upon you. So he acknowledges his sin, uses the full vocabulary of transgressions and iniquity and sin. He knows the enormity of it now. He sees the breadth of it now. And he knows this his sin was ultimately not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba, and not against his people. It was against God. Verse 4 against you. And you only have I sinned. Don't miss this point. This is vital for us to understand that he is not unaware that he has sinned grievously against Uriah, Bathsheba, and his people. But he has sinned against God, against you. And you only have I sinned. And what you want to see from this is that the sin beneath the sin is what God was after. David knew not to commit adultery. David knew not to murder. David knew not to commit false witness and bear false witness. But he did all three. And yet, it says, that was bad, and that was bad, and that too was bad, but this is really bad. You Against you and you alone have I sinned. We need to understand this because all sin fundamentally is against God, but all sin is not fundamentally horizontal. It's primarily, first and foremost, vertical. David is saying, I don't need to heed that. I don't, I don't, I can get away with adultery. I, I can lie and justify it. And I can bear false witness to justify my reputation and to keep this fear of man at bay. And God is saying, no, you have sinned against me and me only. Why have you despised the command of the Lord to do what is evil in your sight? When I'm impatient with my wife or I'm short or I have a harsh word that comes out, you know what? The Bible talks about the husband mandates to love your wife, to nourish your wife, to cherish your wife, to live with her in an understanding way, to never be harsh with her, Colossians 3.19. And yet, when that happens, yes, it is sin on my part, and I have sinned against my wife. 
But does the thought resonate? Is it influencing me that I am sinning against God first and foremost? That, that sin beneath the sin is what God is after. My rebellion, my resistance to obeying, my despising, as said in, the, in, in 2 Samuel, his word. Instead, I may say things like, well, what's the big deal? Or you may even justify it. Or you may blame shift or minimize it. In this day and age, perhaps it could be something as simple as, well, look, it was only a glance, but I didn't linger in it. And you know that the sin beneath the sin is despising God's word when he says, this is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. To knowingly do this, Scripture says, you displease God, you despise his word, and you utterly scorn his majesty. So David gets it exactly right. Against you, I have sinned. And he goes on then in verse 4. He says, so you are justified, Lord, in your words. Your words of do not, do not, do not. You're justified and you are blameless then in your judgment of me for rebelling against those words. David says, I know and I accept the rightness of your judgment. And he's fully aware that he's guilty. And not only that, look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't some statement about the inherent sinfulness of procreation. David is saying that he realizes that from his birth, he has had a sin nature. That it's a nature that's bent towards sin and bent towards rebellion against God, and it all comes from within. But the thing that David did, it's not something random. It's not something freakish. It was driven by desire. Desire for lust. Desire for another woman's body. Desire for pride and reputation and not being seen as one of those who does evil against the Lord. Fear of man. David is simply saying, I'm a sinner by nature. I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inner man. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And now David is saying, I'm going to confess openly, acknowledge the truth of what I have done. I've sinned. I stole another man's wife. I took another man's life, and I've lied to everyone around me. And this truth should be resident there in my heart. This wisdom of God should be, David is saying, resident in me. But I chose to despise your word and I chose to utterly scorn you in fulfilling my desire. And David, David feels the weight now of this sin and he knows now he needs God's mercy. He desperately needs God's mercy. So he opens his psalm, have mercy on me, O God. Don't treat me as I deserve to be treated. Remove my guilt. Take it away. I tell you, one of the things that the Bible is 
brutally honest with is the people in their honest presentation of who they are and what they've done. There's no attempt here to clean him up and to put him in the best possible light. They're seen in their weakness. They're seen in their failures. They're seen in their frailties. They're seen in their sin. And I believe that's why a psalm like this resonates so deeply with us because it is filled it is filled with people just like you just like me like us you know my own life story is just filled with these moments of weakness these moments of failure times of denying my own temptations repeated sinning self-determination self-sufficiency pride and impatience man you would only need to ask my wife or my children if any of those things were true. And then by the glory and by the grace of God, he brings my wife as one of the most courageous people I know to draw attention to where she sees in me a blind spot. And they're appropriately called that because you don't see what you're doing because underlying that is a motive and getting to that motive is the hard part, and she is courageous to go after that. So, let's apply this first point. These Bible stories like this, and all their openness, all their raw ugliness, you know what they tell? My story, they tell your story, and here's what it says. We regularly are in need of God's mercy. Perhaps more so going into 2020. Perhaps, perhaps for you there is a way, uh, uh, an awareness that you know of coming from 2019 into this year that there's been an ongoing carelessness in some area of your life and your walk before God. Maybe there's a, an apathy about a particular area that he calls you to war against and to fight against and it's just not, just not doing it. There's a, there's a despising God's word going on in your soul and I would pray that if that's the case, that the Lord is using this message, this, this chapter out of Psalms, to draw attention to that with a greater weight, a greater conviction, a greater consciousness that it's the sin beneath the sin that God is after, the rebellion against him. You may be presuming on grace. He'll forgive me. I know he'll forgive me. I just know he will. That, that may be true. There's a knowingly sinning, though, there is a willingly sinning, and you know what? It displeases God. Maybe it's a secret sin. Only you know about it, but you know what? The Lord knows about it. And as you continue in that, it is rebellion against him. God knows it, and know what? He knows you need his mercy. He knows you need his mercy. So are you guilty? And I have this list on your handout of any sin that you have sinned recently or repeatedly. Are you guilty of the sin of cheating, of lying, of stealing something that's not yours, or perhaps of envy, maybe withholding love from another, or are you guilty of oppressing another person with your words or perhaps even with your actions? Are you guilty of lust? Are you guilty of what I call peekaboo porn? Just that little look, just that little glance, not a big thing, I don't linger. And despising God's word, 
Leviticus 18, 17, if you want it, says, thou shalt not undress and reveal the nakedness of a woman, a mother, or her sons and mother's daughter. Are you guilty of self-righteousness, of pride, hypocrisy, slander, or gossip? Do you come quickly with judgment before asking questions? Are you guilty of discontentment? The answer is, of course, in varying degrees, we are. And in all of these, all of these on this type of list, not exhaustive, there is, this is what to note, there is the sin beneath the sin. There is the rebellion against God that I know he says, don't, and I do it. Or do, and I don't do it. And it should echo, why have you despised the word of the Lord? We're all sinners, and we're all in need of God's mercy. So the first call out of point one is just, hey, this is what the cross is for. This is what the gospel has such a powerful and transforming effect on our lives. Come openly and self-identify as a sinner in need of mercy. Your eternal justification is not in jeopardy, but your communion with God is. Your communion with your brothers and sisters is. Your peace of conscience is. I love what David says in Psalm 84. He says, the Lord is a sun and shield. In other words, he lights my path and he protects my way. He bestows favor and grace. No good thing will I withhold from him whose walk is upright and with integrity blesses is he. blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. You see, this, this wasn't written for David. You got that? This, this wasn't written for him. This was written for us. And this is written that millions of millions of people have benefited from this truth of helping them to see the sin beneath the sin that God is after. And he stands there saying, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden in your sin. Learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and you will find rest for your soul because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come for this mercy and let, let, let hearing this be the greatest news and the greatest joy to hear it fresh. God is full of mercy and he delights to forgive sinners i love what elise morgan writes in her book called the beauty of broken my story and possibly yours she says the following quote if all we do is pretend to be sinners then all we will be able to do is pretend to be forgiven end quote if all we do is pretend to be sinners then all we'll be able to do is pretend to be forgiven. We're all sinners, yet we're all in need of God's great mercy, and he is eager to give it, eager to supply it. So we're sinners in need of mercy, and guess what? <laughs> God is full of mercy. Point two, God is full of mercy. He is abounding in mercy towards those who come to him. And as Christians, we need to have this truth fixed in our souls that this is what God is like. He, and we should never weary of hearing this 
and knowing this. And that's what Psalm 51 wants us to hear. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He uses three words to describe this characteristic of God. Remember how he described himself to Moses in Exodus 34? In Exodus 34, show me your glory, show me your glory. And in 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who David knows his God is. David would have read that a hundred times and that's exactly what he's appealing to for God now. His character, God's revealed character. According to your steadfast love. That's steadfast, that's unfailing, that's loyal. David is basing his appeal for God's mercy on the faithfulness of God to his covenant. This is covenant language describing the nature of God as a covenant-keeping God. David knows he's sinned, but he still knows this. He still belongs to God. Man, we sin, but we still belong to him because of his covenant ratified, sealed at the cross. Second, he continues in verse one, according to your abundant mercy. This is speaking of something unusually large. There's an awareness and a sympathy for someone's suffering. David bases his appeal to God's mercy on God's compassion. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He has dealt with our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. They have been paid for. Spend some time in Psalm 103. Instead, the Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives, circle it in your Bible, all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with, get this, steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good, and renews your youth like that of the eagles. And he goes on to talk about the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And David knew who his God was when it came to this attribute of his unfailing love and his abundant mercy. And then he says, blot out my transgressions. Man, Isaiah 43, 25 that's one for the heart. I am he, I, comma, I am he who blots out your transgressions. We don't use the word blot, but it's like taking ink on a paper and you're lifting the ink from the paper with a blotter. So the record of your debt, of your sin against God is lifted from the paper. It's blotted out. I am he who blots out your transgressions. <sighs> and remembers them no more. You see, the gospel not only transforms our present, the gospel not only transforms our future, the gospel transforms our past. Because when you look at your sin with unhelpful shame or deep introspective twirling and stirring about it, God says, I don't, 
it's forgiven. I don't remember it like that. There may be consequences, but I don't remember it like that. The gospel transforming your past. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Translation better here would be launder me. It's got this picture of being washed. You know, the, the, David's talking about the process, the stain being taken out. My dear wife uses a soapstone. You know what a soapstone is when you've got a really bad stain? And her, the washroom is right next to my office at the house, and I hear this, you know, <laughs> and I know what she's doing. She's working hard to remove a stain probably something that I have spilled on my pants or on my shirt, and she is faithful to launder and to work and to take that stain out. Cleanse me from my sin. This is actually language of purification. Remove that. Lord, remove it, that which keeps me separate from you. Hyssop was a it was a branch that had the, the structure of the branch, but it enabled it to hold liquid. And so the Old Testament references are, are numerous related to what David might be referring to here. It could be the Passover in Exodus, you know, where they painted the, the doorframe before the death angel came. It could be the cleansing of the lepers in Leviticus. It could be purification rites in Numbers. It's not clear which one he was specifically referring to. I'll lean on the Exodus one, where the last plague of the death angel came Take a lamb, slaughter it, take the blood, and paint it on the doorpost over your frame. And when that death angel comes, it will pass over you. Why? The people inside are just as guilty as the people outside. But that in faith, painting that blood on that door, Dave, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to provide a substitute for you. It's going to act like a covering. It's actually going to act like a cleansing. And the only way your sin can be dealt with is for someone to take that penalty. God in his mercy makes this provision. And you know where the Bible goes with this. That's why we're here. Of all the sacrificial lambs that this pointed to, the blood of the lambs, it did not cleanse the guilt of the Israelites. They were all pointing ahead to the ultimate sacrificial substitute in which God in his mercy provided Christ the Lamb, the Lamb of God that takes away your sin and mine. So from verse 1 to verse 7, look at all these things David is appealing to God, to him to do. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. Purge me. Wash me. Let me hear joy. You can't be self-atoning. You can't be self-forgiving in that way because, because your sin isn't against you. The sin beneath the sin is against God and he is the one that must forgive. And he is eager to do that. He is full of mercy to come for you to come to him. And under the terms of the agreement that God has made through the substitutionary sacrifice and atoning sacrifice of Christ, God says to him who come, your sins and your transgressions, they are forgiven. I remember them no more. I remove your guilt as far as the east is from the west. Like Micah talks about, throws them into the depths of the sea. As high as the heavens are from the earth, I delight to 
shower you with steadfast love, abundant mercy, and forgive your sins. So, if you hear this morning and you are in Christ, the language being you are washed in the blood, let's just say God shows up at your dinner table some evening this week and he has a complete knowledge, complete knowledge of who you are, what you've done, knows your life story from beginning to end. He knows every skeleton in the closet. He knows the present state of your walk, your hidden thoughts, your mixed motives, your dark desires, and yes, your secret rebellions. And you know what? He would say, according to his steadfast love and his abundant mercy, you would experience his acceptance and forgiveness because of the finished work of Christ. He will not deal with you in all those things according to your sin. He will deal with according to his steadfast love and his mercy. The great mercy of God. Puritan Richard Sibbs said it this way, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And we sang the first song this morning, my sins are many, but his mercy is more. I close with this quote from Nick Batzig of Reformation 21. It's in your handout. Believers, as we struggle in our souls for nearness to God, a restored sense of his favor and delight and new manifestations of his present and power, we must learn to cry out to God from the depths acknowledging God's holiness, our sin and rebellion, what our iniquities deserve, and the great mercy of God in Christ that he continually shows us as we turn back to him from the depths. It is in this way that we will repeatedly experience in our souls the truth that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us and as the apostle paul boldly declared when he said where sin abounded grace did abound much more yes god is full of mercy his great mercy he delights to give to those who come to him let us pray Father, I pray now that your word does the heavy lifting. That Holy Spirit, you would take what has been preserved for us, inspired by you, Holy Spirit, Lord, that where there was not there was not a heart response to your mercy that there would be now a movement from knowing it to actually allowing it to function and to influence and to change. Lord, and I pray for all of us, whatever that area is of apathy or carelessness that we have allowed to carry into this year, 
Lord, bring conviction that that may be brought into the light and to experience your steadfast love and to experience your abundant mercy so that, like David, that guilt can be lifted. Lord, that can be removed and there can be a freedom in Christ because of what he took that you deserve. And now he works through you by his grace. Not doing what we're all simply told to do, but being motivated by what's been done for us. And so I pray, Lord, the power of the cross, the power of the Holy Spirit, the working with your word, Lord, we experience your transforming power this coming week in this whatever area it is for each of us. Lord, to the praise of your glory, for the good of your people, Lord, for the grace of the church, in Jesus' name, amen.